Welcome to Fathering Excellence, where fathers of accomplished people share their parenting insights. This episode, I'm excited to be talking with Wayne Maines, father of Nicole Maines. Nicole is an actress on the CW Network series Supergirl, where she portrays the superhero Dreamer. Nicole has also appeared in the TV shows Royal Pains, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and starred in the comedy horror film Bit. Wayne is also the father of Jonas Maines, who has some acting skills of his own, including several stage credits. Nicole and Jonas are fortunate to have Wayne Maines as their father. First, a bit of background on Wayne. Wayne grew up in a small town and in a conservative family. He's a hunter, a fisherman, and enjoys the occasional beer. Yet after having kids, Wayne found himself in a situation that was rather foreign to him, and eventually led to a state Supreme Court decision in favor of his family. What was it that led Wayne and his family to the state Supreme Court? Basically, it was about defending Nicole's rights as a transgender child. Transgender isn't a word that Wayne was particularly familiar with. It was a journey for Wayne to try to understand what this meant, to come to grips with the reality of his daughter's true identity, and to figure out how to do his best as a parent for his kids. But, as a professional safety officer and a veteran, when Nicole became the target of bullying and threats, Wayne was prompted into action to keep her safe and to fight for her rights. If you're at all like Wayne, or, to be perfectly transparent, someone like myself, who at first struggle to understand what it means to be transgender, then this episode of Fathering Excellence will shed a little light on the topic. Wayne shares some stories from his journey, some terrific parenting insights, and offers great advice for people who feel their child might not be getting the support they need from their school or in other areas of life. I'm Jonathan V, and this is Fathering Excellence. Starting out, Wayne, could you tell me what it's like to be the dad of a superhero? It's pretty surreal. First time, I remember we went to the premiere in Hollywood and we went to the big thing with Warner Brothers and Pond Studio and people are, were really cool. And, and the day before, they asked us to actually do a talk with all their management. And what we thought about the role of LGBT community in Hollywood and from parents' perspective. And that was powerful. I, I know afterwards, there were a lot of tears and laughter. And they said, we wish we had filmed that. And so and then I had all these new friends. Every time we go somewhere and we do a talk, I walk away with some new family members. So we went to that. And it was just seeing your kid on the big screen. There were a lot of happy tears. It was pretty powerful. But when we watch the show, we see little glimpses of our Nicole. Because that's really Nicole. <laughs> she's, a, she's a tough nut. She survives because she's tough. That's awesome. That must be a, quite an experience, quite a feeling to see that, especially what you have come through as a family. Yeah, it is. It's pretty great. And then the rest of the time, we slap her upside the head and say, don't get cocky. <laughs> <laughs> so, Keep her feet on the ground. That's right. So even when when you have a transgender child, you know, there's all these challenges and you start maybe treating them differently or with kit gloves. And we finally realized we couldn't do that anymore. We we had to say to her, oh, you have a crappy thing. You're transgender. You need to freaking follow the rules. There's consequences. You know, that pays off because every kid needs to hear that. Right. Yep. 
Rolling back the clock, could you tell me just a little bit about yourself? Where are you from originally? What were your interests? What were you like as a young man? I grew up in the upstate New York in a small mill town and all the mills had died. There was leather mills was the, the thing. There was still one kind of active down the street from my house and my uncles and my grandfather, they all worked there. They were true old mill workers. Half of them had missing fingers because of the nature of that work. But everything I did was basically sports and hunting and fishing. You know, everything that I harvested, we ate. And I was an okay student, but I didn't really have any any desire to go to college. Nobody in my family had ever gone. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was always a hard worker. So I joined the Air Force and I, I worked for dentists and oral surgeons. And that's where I, I got the confidence to go on and go to college. Even then, my career started out, I wanted to be a wildlife biologist or a forester, and it just didn't work out. So so I was at an NRA shooting sports camp, and I met a faculty member from West Virginia University, and he offered to pay for my master's degree and my PhD wow. in safety field. And I said, sure, why not? No, I have nothing else going on. So I've been doing that the last 40 years, safety specialist, helping people be safe and protect people. That's quite an achievement. And what was the Maine's house like when the kids were young? When they were babies, we lived in New York and we bought an old farm. It was kind of Norman Rockwell-like. I mean, with the kids, you know, everybody, we had the biggest house. They came for our house for Thanksgiving, lots of animals around and lot woods and two big dogs. And it was just a, like any other happy family. Just, I worked a ton of hours, but Kelly, we restored the farm over 10 years. It was a labor of love, and it was good. It was a great place to raise kids, on a, right near my parents on a lake. Sounds picturesque. Yeah. There just weren't many jobs. It was a big challenge. That's what prompted you to, to move to Maine? Yeah, it was a new job, but at that point, we knew something was going on. Nicole was gender nonconforming, at least kind of, and I didn't think it was going to work out where we were. And it was a good job. So we, we packed up. I remember I told my parents on Easter Sunday, my mother was so mad she didn't talk to me for a week because I was taking her grandbabies away. Uh, That's hard, but you got to go where the jobs are. And that was Orno, Maine, is that right? Orno, Maine, yeah. That little tiny town. The university was on an island between the Stillwater and the Penobscot River. Huh. Yeah, beautiful country. Oh, I bet. Lots of outdoor sports for you to do there as well. There was, and we bought the last decent-sized piece of land, a little barn in a pasture and 80 acres behind me with all kinds of deer hunting. We had tree stands everywhere. That's wonderful. And how old were the, the twins when you moved to, to Maine? They were maybe five and a half, six. So you said that at around that age, or I guess that's by the time you moved, so prior to that, Nicole was already gender nonconforming. What does that look like at that age? Well, I mean, there was a lot going on before she could talk that I didn't, you don't really recognize the signs. But when she was old enough to talk, I remember very clearly Kelly was down at the barn and I was making a new bathroom in this old farmhouse. And we had a clawfoot tub and I was putting some wainscoting in and and the kids had their, you know, little play hammers, tool sets. Jonas went out in the living room and Nicole was in there with me and We took a break for some animal crackers, and she looked at me and said, Daddy, I hate my penis. 
when does my penis go away? And uh, hit me like a ton of bricks. And I picked her up and I said, uh, Wi-Pi, that was her nickname, Wi-Pi, said everything's going to be okay. And the tears were just rolling down my cheeks because now I knew, you know, I couldn't hide it anymore. Next thing you know, Jonas is in there and I'm holding the coal crying. He's now he's crying. So I pick him up and I slide down along the wall and I got both kids in my arms and I'm kind of crying. And Kelly peeks her head in the bathroom and goes, What's going on in here? <laughs> what the hell? Later I told her and she goes, Wayne, I've been trying to tell you, but you you wouldn't listen. And that's when we started to at least have some discussions. It still took me two years to figure it all out after that. Not that I wasn't supportive, but people need to understand when we started this journey, we were like the first and any counselor had never dealt with a gender non-conforming child. And when we went to them, they tried to tell us to stay neutral, they'll grow out of it, all those things. And being transgender is persistent and consistent. If you talk to people from Eight to 80, they'll tell you the same thing that Nicole went through that they always knew. Now, some of them got got it beat out of them, the older trans folks, and they hid it for a while. But there's a whole new generation of parents out there that aren't willing to do that. And that's why you're seeing so many kids. They were always there. They're just now being allowed to be who they need to be. Yeah. It sounds like that may have been the the point. I think that you said Beyond that instance, there was still a couple of years before you got there. Yes. So we started working with, we moved to Maine. Kelly found some counselors. I was still in denial in a lot of ways. And then Jenny Boylan, she wrote a book called She's Not There. That's a pretty great book. And Kelly brought it home, sat it in the living room, and I wasn't going to read it, you know. And then finally, she put it in the bathroom. So then I picked it up and read that book. And then I met Jenny Boylan at the university. She was coming to speak every year. And I took Nicole with me. And that was really special. And then it was easy to do it at home because when I we let her be who she needed to be at home, all summer she would be wear dresses and be a girl. And then when school started, she'd have to change. And I'm not an idiot. I mean, I could see the difference, her behavior and her demeanor and, and the things that People say that when you don't let a trans kid be who they need to be, they, they come out sideways. They have anxiety, they have cutting, have self-harm. When we let her be who she needed to be, there was very little of that behavior. Their challenges have nothing to do with being transgender. Their challenges have everything to do with society not letting them be who they need to be. And that's why they have anxiety and self, low self-esteem. Mm. So, and so that was little things like that and then when people attack your kid locally state and nationally that's when i said you know nobody's gonna do this to my child what was the first time where it it seemed like it was explicit bullying well you know you go to mcdonald's and your child's name is wyatt benjamin she has long hair and wearing a dress right to give kelly a break we would go to mcdonald's on sundays and the you know, the ball play pits there, you know, mm-hmm. and the playland. In the middle of it, Jonas comes down and I said, Hey, it's time to go. He went back up and he came back down and said, They won't let, they've got Wyatt trapped up there and they won't let him out. They're being really, really mean. Just to note, people get angry once in a while when I, I use Nicole's dead name, but 
but sometimes it's hard to frame the story if you don't. And she's okay with it for your podcast, folks. No, it's good to know. And then I just lost it. I said, you go up there. I mean, um, and I did that to Jonas a number of times because that's how I was raised. Brothers took care of their sisters. I really put too much responsibility on his little shoulders. And I said, you go back up there and you tell him. You're going to do whatever you got to do to get her out of there. And if not, I'm coming. <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to fit, and, but I was ready. And uh, so finally, they the two girls came down, and they were really giving me the evil stare. And then they went over to their parents, and they were whispering. And the next thing you know, they're all looking over at us. Then they knew who we were because we were the mainsets from Maine. And uh, Nicole came down. She was ready to go after them. I said, let's just get out of here. That kind of stuff happened all the time after that. We couldn't go to sporting events. We couldn't go to the movies without people pointing and whispering. The kids didn't always see it, but I did. What age roughly was that starting to occur? Nine years old, because it all started. It started before that, but it hit the press when they were nine. We were on the front page of every paper. Wow. So those kinds of things happen all the time. And then when the Christian Civic League came with lawyers and cameras, that's when I became not only just a protector of Nicole and Jonas, because Jonas actually, in a lot of ways, had it harder than Nicole because he was hanging around with young boys, and she at least had her girlfriends. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of an inflection point for you, it sounds like, when Nicole became the subject of hostility. So the first phase was your journey to understand that she's not going through a phase. This is who she is. And then there was, how do you respond to this burgeoning hostility towards her? And then there were actual, just people that were just wanted to know and ask questions. And you had to weed out who really just wanted to know. And I mean, it was so, it got so bad that, I mean, we lost family and friends, but I can remember people crossing the street and not walking on the same side of the street as we did. And then we started to not get invited to things. But at the same time, we developed this whole new inner circle. And when we finally got involved in the lawsuit and the court case, people from all over New England came to our aid. And our family is so much bigger now. <laughs> it's, it's huge. The people that just come out of the woodwork to help you. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, that's really great. So as your family grew, so to speak, and you also became accepting of Nicole's identity, were there ever times where you would join Nicole or take Nicole out to an LGBTQ event? There were a few things. I I remember one time, uh, remember Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Sure. And Nicole, we had just moved to Portland, so she would have been seventh grade, maybe. And uh, Lady Gaga was coming to town, and I heard about it on the radio. And I just knew she was going to ask me to go. So uh, we were at breakfast, and she goes, Daddy, Lady Gaga's in town. I said, yeah, you want to go? And my, Kelly's jaw almost dropped, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we went, and I'd never been to a rally my whole life. And this wasn't something I would have done. And, of course, now it was all purple-haired, nose-ring-tattooed LGBTQ people. Before Lady Gaga got up, they had a, a female colonel from the army helicopter pilot who was teaching at West Point and somebody outed her and she lost her whole career after 16 years of service. My goodness. And I was just crushed, you know. And four years short of hitting her 20 in retirement, right? Exactly. I mean, you're, I mean, man. And then Lady Gaia comes out and uh, 
she reads the military oath. And then when she gets at the end, she goes, unless you're gay. Then everybody goes, how many veterans are there in the crowd? And well, I think I was maybe one of two out of like seven, eight hundred people there, you know. And Nicole's up in a tree. She had climbed a tree so she could see better, hanging out of the tree with like one finger holding her in the tree. Dad, raise your hand. <laughs> and um, again, I was in tears. I was ashamed of our, our country for doing that to these people. So you said some people were seemed authentically curious and, and wanted to learn. How would you explain what it means to be transgender to them? And I remember our next door neighbor, he was an Iraq war vet, a Marine tank. I don't think he was a, a tank squadron leader, right? Played football at the university. You're classic Mainer. I didn't have to explain it to him because he was able to, his son Logan was three or four years younger than my kids. And there was nobody else there. We lived in the country. So the kid lived at our house. So they got to watch her transition and, and, Sometimes you can do it that way with the people that just get to be around you and you don't even have to say a thing. They just, it becomes naturally. But the rest of the people, I would just say, you know, what do you want to know? There's no, there's no wrong question. It's not going to insult me. Of course, it always started with the bathroom. So that was easy to get out of the way. And I would just say to them, I mean, what do you think they're doing? They're just girls talking about boys. And Nicole's just going to use the bathroom. She's got things she doesn't even want. You know, she's not going to, they were all worried, like somebody's going to show somebody something. I said, you got to worry about other people, not Nicole. And I said, what else do you want to know? And I said, Nicole knows who she is. I can't tell you why. I, now I know a lot more about the science. But I said at the time, every waking moment before she could talk until this day, she would tell us who she is. And it's in her brain and in her soul. And finally, who the hell cares? You know, it's just is she is she's a good kid. She's protecting your kid. She's going to school. I'm raising my children to be hardworking, loyal, and go to work, pay taxes, and be a good American. I mean, what else, you know? What else could I say back then? That was that's how I felt, and I was really proud of them. And I said, you should be proud of them too. And all right, let's have another beer. <laughs> you know? so, and normally it worked out. It took some people. I'm, our neighbors across the street were devout Maine Baptists, and they they love our family and Nicole. But they had to. Sometimes it takes really knowing somebody. So when I meet somebody that has questions, I said, "Go have dinner, or, or go out with a beer, and have a beer with a trans person." Or and I know what you have in common. They're no different than you and I. They just want to make a living and be left alone. There was a lot in the book about some of the science behind it as well. Is there anything about that that you have found particularly compelling as you've learned more about the science? Well, for us, it started with having identical twins. And I have an undergrad degree from Cornell University in natural resources and biology, so I know a little bit. I had the control group there, Jonas, right? And there are not that many twins One's trans and one's cisgender. Laverne Cox has a cisgender brother. I'm trying to think of who else, some of the others. And cisgender being somebody whose gender identity aligns with their biological gender. With their biological gender, yeah. And uh, I got to watch. And people, of course, used to say nature versus nurture. And it's definitely nature. It's not nurture. You can't 
you know, I couldn't make Jonas be trans. You want it's persistence and consistence, and every day they tell you who they are, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. But in the science, I mean, it really does happen in the womb. And there's Amy did it so eloquently, talked about epigenetics, where there's not only your chromosomes that decide who you are, but there's these thousands and thousands and thousands of switches that impact how they develop. And that's what makes people who they are, even though, you know, you might look the same, there's so many other things going on in your brain and in your body. Right, right. And while they both share the placenta, they both have their own unique embryonic sac and environment and... Yeah, and personality, all of that. Yeah, the epigenetics is is fascinating. And I think that a lot of people feel, certainly there was a point in time where, where I did, that if two people are, have the identical genetics, that they'll be identical. And I think any parent of twins would be quick to say, our identical twins are not identical in, in every single way and their fingerprints are different. And epigenetics, as I understand it, is the environment that can cause certain genes to turn on and off. So while we can can have the same genetic code between two people. If some of the genes are expressed in one person and not the other and vice versa, then they'll ultimately have different traits or personalities or other characteristics about them that are different despite the identical genetics. Is is that a fair is that a fair characterization of it? That's fair. And then there's the mapping of the brain, you know, what's a female brain mapped out to be and what's a male brain and later in life when they can do that, it, most often comes back that, you know, it's not perfect, but that, yeah, she has a female brain. Yeah, that's fascinating. It is. It's, it's pretty cool. Among the people that were, had a more hostile reaction, were there common themes? Absolutely. They use the bathroom as their, it's always about fear. They want to reach to somebody's fear. Now it's sports, you know, like, oh my God, get over it. It's just sports. But it was the bathroom and the Bible. I can remember going to the Human Rights Commission, and there were people in there that came from all over Maine, waving their Bibles and screaming, and they had so much hate and anger in their eyes. And I was just looking at them like, this is a nine-year-old kid. What are, you, what are you guys doing? You know, I just wanted to go over and say, what are you doing? It was so hard to control my anger. I would have liked to mix it up a little, but I didn't. Because it didn't, that didn't help. And then what Nicole, we had to teach our kids the same thing. If you react in the wrong way, or react, or even react in some instances, it just stir, that's what they want, right? Right. So let's do it in court, and let's do it the right way and with honor. That's what we did. It wasn't always easy. It was because nobody. It took five and a half years. No judge in the nation wanted to be the one to make that decision. And the crux of the the core case itself was, as I recall, it was twofold. It was around access for Nicole to be able to use the bathroom that aligned with her gender identity and ensuring that she had a a safe environment. Yeah, I mean, there were were so many other things we could have went after, just the discrimination and hostile school environment. It's so hard to prove in court. It It was definitely there. These kids... All these trans kids live in hostile school environments, but it's it's very hard to prove. But it really was the, the ability to use the bathroom with your gender identity and the ability to get the same education as your classmates. 
Mm-hmm. There was an instance, could you recount, that precipitated a lot of the the bathroom controversy? Well, yeah, it was a grandfather who just lived down the road from us. He was uh, raising his grandson. I think his grandson had a crush on Nicole. He was a big kid. I think he had flunked a couple of grades. He was a big young man. But they came to a school board meeting with lawyers and the Christian Civic League executive director, this guy named Michael Heath, and the big protest. And after that, see, we were doing okay to that point because we had worked with our school. And that's what happens all over the country. Everybody's fine until there's a problem. And then you, the loudest complainers, that's who they listen to. And, they, and of course, the Christian Civic League threatened to sue them. And, of course, I said, well, you're worried about the wrong people. And they didn't believe me because my job was to do what they were doing there to protect their institution, right? I said, this is what I do for a living, guys. One of the things that took years later is, you know, Kelly had such a hard road when I wasn't on board and she did all the hard labor. And then later when we got to court and even with the advocacy work, those are my specialties. And I don't think we would have won if I hadn't documented everything. I mean, I had spreadsheets and our attorneys go, you got what? I said, yeah, I got everything. Now I teach other parents how to do that. Make sure you have your ducks in a row. And I remember a few years ago, Kelly said to me, I forgive you. You know, we each came on this journey in our own way. And when you needed to step up and play it in ways I couldn't, you did. And, uh, you know, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. So she was she was shouldering a lot of the burden when you were still getting there, trying to come to understand what was going on and, and believing what was happening with Nicole was a real thing. Yeah. She's a strong, strong person. And when you said uh, you're, you help other parents with of trans kids, if one of those parents were listening to this, what are some of the things that you would say are important for them to document? Well, the first thing I would say, never go to a school meeting without somebody with you. And and do it casually. It can be a neighbor or your mother. Don't bring your attorney because that just shuts them down. But make sure you always have a witness because there are a lot of questions, a lot of times that we had met early on. You can't use your own spouse as a witness. You know, that just doesn't work. But if your neighbor's with you and you just say, oh, we were going to get groceries. I stopped in. I had this question last week. Johnny was having trouble in the bathroom. What are you guys going to do about that? And then you now you got a witness, but then I tell them every time you need to go home and follow it up with an email and say exactly what was said at the meeting. Mm. And then every time little Johnny comes home with a tummy ache or a headache or misses school, you need to write it down. And they won't always tell you why. You know, Nicole didn't either. But now you're starting to find all that nervous stomach and all those other things that happens to kids with anxiety. But you have every one of those cases documented. The, bad dreams, everything. Just keep documenting. It might be nothing, but in the end, you might need it. Right. And that sounds like good advice for anybody whose child is having an issue at school, especially those who are the, you know, the subject of bullying or a whole variety of things that could be causing them to be singled out. Absolutely. Special needs kids take a beating. You know, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's innocent and a lot of times it isn't because you know, what we've learned in our journey is every kid is innocently accepting of everybody until they learn from somebody else. Right. Yeah, that's it's important for any parent. And then uh, parents need to get involved. I didn't just go there and sue the school. I got involved in the PTO. I, they needed money. I wrote grants. 
you know, I needed to show everybody that we weren't here to beat up the teachers. You know, we were here to make things better. I'm really proud of uh, the Supreme Court right now. So now we have protection for the LGBT community and employment, but we also need to pass the Student Non-Discrimination Act, basically the student version of Civil Rights Act for adults and employment. I worked on that a number of years ago, and I went to D.C. and did some lobbying. And when I, I, our attorney sent it to us from GLAD, and I was reading it on the way to Washington, and I, I was just taken back that people are fighting for adults, but they're not willing to fight for children. Like, how can you be? How can any politician look me in the eye and say they don't want to protect the kids? But man, they did it. You know, the time's not right. We're working on it. These are kids. Right. Circling back a little bit, there was a point where, due to the environment in Orno, your wife and kids moved to Portland, if I recall correctly? Yes. And eventually landed in a school that seemed like it was a terrific fit for them, a private school. And given your employment circumstances and also trying to support, I would imagine, the the cost for the school and court. Plus Nicole's hormone blockers with $1,600 shout a month that wasn't covered. For financial reasons, you're by necessity, you, you have to stay in the job in Orno for the good of your family so that you could provide. Yeah, I really did have to. Otherwise, when I wouldn't have had a job and we couldn't leave Maine. And if we couldn't make it in Maine, where were we going to go? You know, maybe California. Yeah. And that's a big maybe even then. It was brutal. I mean, that everything that was going on, there were so many times that I thought, like, man, I'm a biggest failure in the whole world. I can't even protect my own kid. I don't have enough money. Uh, we're still catching up. I mean, that drains you to be in court and have two houses and a school, private school. But we never regret Wayne Fleet's the name of the school. They, they set the stage for the rest of the country and Jonas and Nicole, a big part of who they are today is because of that high school. That's wonderful. But uh, not every kid gets to do that. You know, our kids had some privilege. And luckily, I, I, we had the resources to do it. But there's trans kids living in little communities and trailer parks all over the United States. that They don't have that possibility. How did you change or, or did you have to change your approach to parenting when the time that you have with your kids is suddenly limited? And it's not something, I mean, it's, it's not something that's a terribly uncommon occurrence, right? There's situations where one of the parents needs to travel a lot or like you may be even located during the majority of the week in a different place. So when you're getting together, are you parenting in a different way given that limited time that you have with your kids? I lost pretty much the kids critical teenage years i only saw them if lucky a day and a half a week all because of this so i wasn't there when jonas needed me and then when i was there i was still fighting every second on the court case or something else we were trying to protect the kids from being hurt it was brutal it was a war zone and i feel guilty for not being there but again you at the time you do the best you can and now i'm trying to make it up. And uh, Nicole's here. She's been here for most of the COVID thing. So it's kind of cool having her around. Jones is in Chicago trying to make his way. And uh, he's a young man now. He doesn't want his dad telling him anything, even though I want to. Don't do that. We still have some ground to make up, Jonas and I. I feel bad. 
And I know he has some resentment, which isn't uncommon for a father and son a little bit, but not to the stage that I owe him so much. He taught me a lot because he's so smart, so ahead of his time, you know? What did he teach you? Well, when the kids were eight and nine, I mean, he, he would continue his dad. You never had two sons, not your daughter. You can get over it, you know? And mm-hmm. just the way that he naturally accepted everything she did and taught other kids around him. And I got to watch that. And my my 10-year-old had more courage than I had. And I learned that from him. So he doesn't understand to this day how much that he helped me grow. A challenging situation, as you mentioned before, feeling this responsibility for your sister while still being a kid. And and that can be a, a, a challenge for, I think, any brother who feels like they need to stand up for their sister. But in a situation where he was with, with Nicole, maybe feeling a greater sense of importance to, to live up to that role, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Um, I Years later, he said to me, Dad, imagine... I had, he goes, I had teachers coming up to me in the hallway wanting to know what to do and what was Nicole, who she was. And I had tried to explain to them what transgender meant and what we were going through with a sixth grade vocabulary. So, so and that's pretty powerful stuff. And yeah. then he wrote some amazing poetry that was cut from the book because he just it was just too long. He got shortchanged in the book. I read it and I just choke up. They're both really good writers. That's one of the things that Wayne Fleet did for him. I would imagine this, like any circumstance where you've got more than one child and one of the child has a special circumstance, that it can require a lot of the parent's attention, whether it's a special need or maybe it's an athletic pursuit or something else. Did you feel that that had an impact on Jonas? Were there things that you or your wife would try to do in order to, to balance the attention? Were there things you might have done different in retrospect? Kelly definitely did. And I tried, uh, but I, again, I was in the middle of the war zone at that point, the court case and advocacy. I overdid the advocacy thing and it definitely helped Nicole and her career, but it didn't really help Jonas. And I knew I should have, should have backed off a little and had more special time with him. Now he has more interest with his mother and the things that she, he's a writer and an artist and music plays the guitar. I remember we used to, Sunday mornings, we lived in this little crappy college apartment and I would go get the Sunday paper and he would play the guitar on the front porch. I mean, I have such fond memories of that. And I, I went through his guitar lessons. We did that. And he still got, he got short changed. And I think it, when you have a special needs kid, it does happen, but you got to figure out ways to at least try to balance it out a little more. As... Nicole gets older against this rather unique backdrop that's the life she's living and, and that your family's living. It seemed like she was also showing an interest towards acting. Was that something that you felt was important to her at an early age before she graduated high school? When did you start first seeing her interest in acting? Well, both kids, I have them on video acting out the three little pigs at like two and a half, three. <laughs> and they, they've acted out every show they ever watched on television ever since that. And they still do. Jonas has a degree in theater. He's quite the accomplished. He was more into acting than Nicole. And she, she did some things. And, of course, she has a platform that raised her notoriety. 
So she has had more opportunities. He moved to Chicago to try to do some stage theater and then COVID-19 hit. And they both have always been involved. We didn't really, it was Wayne Fleet, one of the counselors or actually administrator there, Lowell, took Jonas under his wing and got him back in the theater. He had got out of it for a while. He's phenomenal Shakespearean. He, he played Hamlet, Rosencrantz and Gildenstern, or did that one, all in high school. These are powerful, long, two-and-a-half-hour plays. I didn't really have a lot of respect or understand theater until I watched them. Just the fact that they could remember all that, let alone pull it off with such power. I can, I got, he did one play, and I remember a couple of teachers, these are, you know, senior teachers saying, your son moved me so much. And, and then I go, wow, you know, that I gained so much respect for him. And, and then all of a sudden, Nicole, she just does it. She just naturally does it. When you get them together, they are amazing and funny and quick-witted. It's just entertaining. It's a lot of fun. And was that something that you had an opportunity to support? It strikes me as the type of thing that some parents probably may be inclined to work against just because it's a very tough career. It is. I mean, and I, they were so smart in math and science and they could write. I, I remember these two women moved across the street from us. One of them's a very famous a video artist in the Guggenheim all over. They're really, I became, can't remember the show, Facts of Life, where Dwayne, the handyman, I became their handyman. They had a little girl named Alice that was like four and I would come over and fix things. And they took us out for pizza one night in Portland, Maine. and. We got talking, and uh, I said, "I just can't believe they're going into acting." And she was one. Of, she was, a, of course, a video, and her partner was a taught theater at Bowdoin College. So they are like Greenwich Village art. I remember I got this really nasty look, right? And then a couple of days later, she called me over to the house and uh, explained to me where I was going awry. And and I said, "I didn't mean it that way, but I worry." You know, that they're not going to find work. You got to have a day job. You know, being a professional actor, being a superstar on Warner Brothers is like becoming a professional baseball player. The odds aren't that great. So I still worry. I mean, it's a tough business. She's doing well and she's making her way. And if Jonas wants to do the same, I'll, you know, I'll do anything I can to help him. We've always been that way. That's fantastic. People that realize those dreams are only those that took a shot at them. That's right. That's right. So you mentioned that with Nicole, she's living there now. When she's not living there, what's what's your relationship like with her now that she's grown up? Oh, we talk all the time. Of course, she's in Vancouver most of the time. And then she spends a month in LA and then we see her maybe a couple months a year. So we kind of help her with the business end of things. So we talk about that and keep her on track. But before she got Supergirl, I used to have to help her with her auditions. It was brutal. <laughs> some of those scripts are pretty racy. I would have to say some things to my daughter that I no dad wants to say. <laughs> and, and try to keep a straight face. And it's very stressful for, for the actors to do them. And you end up taking the abuse because you're the only other person in the room. Uh, and so auditioning, is, it sucks. I mean, that's their living. You know, you got you to gotta do that. So that's, 
that's what they have to do. Oh, well, good for you for stepping up. I'm sure that if she can do the part well with you as her audition partner, then it must make it that much easier to do it in the actual audition. Yeah, I think so sometimes. And then I say, hey, when am I getting the role? I was great. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else agrees, but I mean, in my mind, I'm ready. <laughs> oh, and you said she's in Vancouver? What she- yeah, filmed in Vancouver. A lot of their shows are. It's, it's cool. We've been up there. The cast is phenomenal. They're all really... She couldn't have been assigned to a better group of people. So we went up there and they treated us like we were their parents. And of course, they'll tell you that she's 10 years ahead of most 20-year-olds. And she's, in a lot of ways, is because of what she's been through. They're all 10 years older than her, 10 or more. And they and they go hang out together. And we're blessed that we don't have to worry about that. Well, I have a few uh, quick closing questions. What are three words that you think your kids or your wife might use to describe your parenting style? I'd say it's three concepts, hard work, self-esteem, and respect. Mm. I had a superintendent of schools when the kids were born tell me that the most important thing a superintendent in school can do is to make sure that every kid has a love for learning. And if they have that, they will have a higher level of self-esteem. And you need both to be successful. How did you cultivate self-esteem? Well, when every day when you're being attacked, it wasn't easy, but every day we would tell them how much we love them and hug them and that you have to fight for what you believe in. It doesn't matter that you're 10 years old. I mean, we kept it simple at that point, but as they got older, was a, you have a voice and we're going to let you use it when it's safe and you can't be a victim. You don't get anywhere being that. And you have to stick up for yourself and find people that can help you stick up for yourself the right way. And that's where that whole community came together. And she's been surrounded by those people and, and us and Jonas too. And that's that. And of course, it's not easy. You got to do the hard work and then you have to have respect for people, even your enemies on occasion. Hey, you mentioned hard work earlier. Could you think of a time where there's something you may have done to emphasize the importance of hard work? I remember the kid. There a lot of kids used to come to our house, and they would hang out. And it's, Wayne Fleet's a you know it's a private upper crust school, so most of these kids their their boat houses were bigger than our house, right? <laughs> and they're they're hanging out down in the basement. Was they could do whatever they wanted down there. We would just throw some pizzas down off the stairs and get out of their way. And I remember one night they were leaving. I said, "Where do you think you're going?" Like, Dad, they got to go. I said, "Not till they clean up the basement." And Jonas and Nicole got so angry and, and embarrassed. And I said, get your asses down there. And, um, and one of the kids came out to me later. So Mr. Maines says, I really like coming here. I go, why? Because we feed you? He goes, no, I can get pizza anywhere. He goes, you make us do things. Hmm. You mentioned a book earlier, She's Not There by Jenny Boylan. And of course, now there is Becoming Nicole by Amy Ellis Nutt, the story about your family's journey. Are there any other uh, books or resources that you found helpful in parenting in general or for parenting a transgender child? Well, not so much books, but there's a couple of support groups. The, it was probably seven years ago now they started the Parents of Transgender Children Facebook support group, and there are maybe 60 of us. There's over 10,000 families in there. That's the most important place where you're going to get to hear from other people that are going through the same thing, and then find a support group within 100 miles of where you live. 
where your kid can have a chance to be with somebody else that's just like them and know that they're not alone. I think the most important thing for dads is having the courage to explore your own weaknesses and open up your mind, follow your heart and open up your mind, and then it will get better. And then, of course, last is you really got to talk to your partner. <laughs> it was years later, we did a Library of Congress interview. We talked about, they asked, I can't remember what brought up the question, but Kelly said to me, remember when we first went to see Dr. Spack that first time at the gender clinic in Boston? It's a five and a half hour drive from Orono to Boston, and neither one of us said a word. And she goes, you know what I was thinking? I go, I don't know. She goes, is Wayne going to sign off on this treatment? And then I said, you know what I was thinking? She goes, no, what? I said, I was worried about how we were going to pay for it. Huh. That was years later. So you got to talk. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. With the benefit of hindsight, are there things that you would have done differently? Yes. I mean, um, for the first couple of years, Kelly went to counseling with Nicole. I never went. That was one of my my last two fears were counseling and dancing. You know, so, uh, so I've been to counseling since then, but you go to counseling. So that's important. Don't be afraid of a little help. And they don't, they're not going to have all the answers. And obviously ours didn't, but they were at least somebody that could listen and help guide you. So that's one of the big things. And then for the other one is leave work at work. My whole life I've been a working machine. And a lot of guys are built that way. And in moms, you just got to leave work at work. That's great advice, which is also an, another great segue. Is there is there any advice that you would give to other fathers in general, or fathers of a transgender child, or in this case, fathers of a children that aspire to become to pursue a career in acting? Well, advice for a father of any LGBTQ child is go meet their community. There's hunters and fishermen and firemen and lawyers and doctors and. You have a lot of some amazing musicians and actors and writers. Just go meet them. And if you listen to their stories, they're the bravest people I've met. Because every day they got up knowing they were going to have a bad day. And they still went to school and then they went to college. And then things started to get better. So, so that's one. Just meet the community. Mm. Don't be afraid of somebody with purple hair and a nose ring. I remember I would go in my white shirt and tie to the university rainbow lounge at the beginning of each semester, each year. And I'd walk in and there'd be all these new LGBTQ freshmen and they'd see this white guy in a white tie and they'd just start to cringe. And then I'd tell them who I was. And then I was like in the club. (laughs) (laughs) But everybody has that bias, you know, don't judge a book by its cover kind of thing. So that's the, and as far as acting goes, I don't know if I have a great deal of advice except to expose them to everything, dance and music and acting and poetry and debate, because all those things come into play. I remember one time Jonas was having trouble in history. No, it was Nicole. And, I, and she goes, what do I need to know history for? I'm going to be an actor. I go, what? I said, what do you think most movies are about? history but just expose them to everything and try to find a theater group that's having fun they almost all of them are and you don't get to be the lead every time that's you gotta have thick skin in that business it's all about hard work and perseverance and just keep plugging away and auditioning sooner or later you'll get a part yeah 
Yeah, I bet that that must take some serious perseverance, but it's yeah. really exciting to see what your kids are, are are doing now and especially this opportunity that she has with Supergirl beyond uh, the other opportunities that she's had. But that's such a fantastic show, I think, going into its fifth season or going into... It'll be going into its sixth. Yeah, yeah she's been in four and five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How exciting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's cool. Wayne, is there anything else that, that we didn't cover that you think would be helpful to share with other fathers who are listening to this podcast? I think I would, again, end with, you have to figure yourself out first before you can help your kids. Because once I did that, I was a better father, I was a better husband, a better person, and a better leader at work. So yeah, just have the courage to take care of yourself so you can help everybody else. That's great advice. Wayne, thank you so much for finding time for this conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, you know, anytime that I can help a new way to get the word out, thank you for getting it out there. Thank you for listening. And thanks to Wayne Maines. If you'd like to learn more, I'd strongly recommend the book, Becoming Nicole. It chronicles the journey of the Maines family and is written by Pulitzer Prize winning author, Amy Ellis Nutt. If you enjoyed the podcast, it would be a big help if you could take 60 seconds to post a review on iTunes. We also love to hear from you. If you have a guest idea, feedback, or just want to reach out and say hello, send a note to us at info, I-N-F-O, at fatheringexcellence.com, or use the contact form on our website. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Lastly, and most important, remember to spend some time today with your child. It goes by in the blink of an eye.